Welcome to episode two, Clinical Documentation, What You Need and What You Don't, by Elizabeth E. Riaz, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. My name is Elizabeth Irias, and I will be your presenter today. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist with specializations in utilization review, clinical management, and quality assurance. As a consultant and trainer, I work closely with clinical teams all over the U.S. to improve the quality of care, documentation, and utilization review outcomes. I also operate a private practice in Westlake Village, California, where I provide adolescent and young adult therapy, as well as family therapy and addictive disorder treatment with an additional focus on LGBT. The course we're going to be discussing today is clinical documentation, what you need and what you don't. Let's be perfectly honest here. It's a rare day to encounter a therapist or counselor who enjoys clinical documentation. It's sometimes an afterthought in our work. It's that thing that we might skim right by at the end of the day in hopes of getting out of the door a little bit earlier, or perhaps seeing more clients and spending a little more time in session. Clinical documentation is very important to our practice, as well as the integration of medical necessity. This key component can help us really pare down our notes to capture what's most important from a session and convey that information effectively and efficiently so that we save more time while still satisfying the legal and ethical requirements for our, for our progress notes. I genuinely believe that our clinical documentation is a very important client advocacy tool. It's also a way for us to improve our responsiveness as providers. It's easy to get swept up and forget about things like treatment planning. And our notes and our clinical documentation is an opportunity for us to really slow down, reflect on what's happened in session or over a treatment episode, and then concisely convey that information. Um, that information could go potentially to the client or to their family, to a third party, to an insurance company, to a legal provider. We'll talk about some of that today in today's training. I think that we have an obligation not only to deliver awesome, effective care, but also to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to advocate for appropriate treatment for our clients. Imagine if a medical treatment were denied by insurance because a doctor or nurse failed to complete accurate notes. That's basically what we're talking about here. This day and age, with the rate of behavioral health disorders, addictive disorders, and suicides being what they are, we need to do our very best to ensure that our clients receive the care they need and care that's medically necessary. Our clinical records weigh into this heavily and have an enormous impact on our clients' ability to, to obtain appropriate services. Additionally, our charts also have an enormous impact on us as providers and whether or not we're able to really show and prove that what we did in a certain situation was clinically appropriate. That really comes down to our clinical charts and we need to make sure that we're doing our due diligence and 
paying attention to the ethical and legal requirements related to our clinical documentation. An important thing I want to point out is how all of these pieces fit together. Quality clinical documentation, I believe, leads to more financial stability, improved utilization review outcomes, satisfied accrediting bodies, and all of that leads into improved client care. Quality clinical documentation is a critical part of the care we provide. It's not enough just to deliver awesome and wonderful effective services. We also have to be documenting them for a number of legal and ethical reasons that we'll talk about during this presentation. Um, when we have more financial stability because of lowered recruitment risk and legal liability, when we have sound clinical documentation, we also have improved utilization review outcomes because insurance companies really base a huge amount of their decision-making on our clinical charts. And we also satisfy accrediting bodies like the Joint Commission and CARF. All of this allows us to really focus on client care. This is forest through the trees thinking. Uh, let me give you an example. So let's say that someone has filed a board complaint against you. If your clinical records are sound, you hopefully won't have much difficulty establishing why you did what you did clinically. You can avoid more of a legal entanglement because of really solid clinical documentation. When our organizations or practices are financially secure, we can give clients more of our focus. We can clearly advocate for their treatment with managed care providers, and we can also save a whole lot of time, energy, and money avoiding corrective action plans with accrediting bodies. All of these factors come together to help us deliver better care to our clients. The Joint Commission has a practical guide to clinical documentation, and in it, it states, Today, the quality and content of the client record may well determine whether treatment is deemed appropriate and level of care are justified and reimbursable. A few words in that really jump out to me. One of them is appropriate. This quote by the Joint Commission is basically saying that our charts are going to reflect whether or not the treatment we provide is appropriate. That's a pretty big concept for us. Chances are the treatment we are providing is appropriate, but if our charts don't reflect that, then we get into some muddy water ethically. Additionally, we're also concerned about reimbursement from third parties like Medi-Cal or insurance companies. If our care isn't medically justified and isn't medically necessary, then our chances of being paid appropriately go down and it also really affects the client's ability to maintain and obtain appropriate treatment. If it's not in the chart, then it didn't happen. This quote is really significant, and this comes up all the time on medical and behavioral health audits. When it comes to our clinical records, they're basically a story of what we did and why we did it. They're an opportunity for us to create a record of our care. And if there's something that we've done or something that happened with a client that doesn't make its way into the chart, then we can easily find ourselves in a he said, she said kind of situation. And that's not a good place to be. I also want to point out a lot of times when people see the term audit, they think about something that has to do with insurance or accreditation. That's definitely true. But keep in mind that our charts are audited 
by different bodies more than just managed care or accreditation companies. For example, if there were a board complaint that were filed against you, the Board of Behavioral Sciences would likely audit the chart for that client in order to see the treatment that you delivered, what the client's symptoms were, what the progress and prognosis were. A lot of different factors would be considered. And if you are in private practice and you're in an environment where you don't accept third-party payments, keep this in mind as you write your charts. All of us need to have prudent clinical records that are reflective of the care that we've provided to our clients. I've been asked the question before, what about an email? You know, what if I have an email showing what I did? Or what if there was a recommendation made from the doctor and it's reflected in the email, but it's not in the client's chart? In my perspective, it's better for us to be very clear in what's in our chart and what's not. If we want to paint the clearest picture for a third party, regardless of who that third party is, about the clinical care that we provided, best to have those pieces of information in the chart. The majority of folks in the United States at this point have some kind of insurance coverage. And because of different parity laws, the majority of policies offer some kind of behavioral health benefit. In order for those benefits to really be used, there has to be medical necessity and justification for whatever service that is, whether it's uh, partial hospitalization, day treatment, or it's outpatient therapy groups, whatever that is, we need to have some illustration of why this service is being recommended. When we have an absence of medical necessity in the clinical chart, that can have a significant impact on a client's ability to obtain the appropriate treatment. Additionally, that also can create a shorter treatment episode than we're recommending. I've had it happen so many times where I've been working with different clinical teams and there will be a denial that's issued from the insurance company, but the client themselves almost inarguably meets medical necessity criteria for that recommended service. The difficulty is not whether or not the client meets medical necessity, it's whether or not the chart itself reflects that the client meets medical necessity. I also want to note that this process of review for our charts can even impact things like short-term disability um, or social security in the sense that if a client goes on disability associated with some diagnosis, our treatment may be evaluated, our charts may be evaluated in order to support that diagnosis and the resulting functional impairment that's caused them to be on disability. So we have to really step back and think about how these simple words that we write on a computer become part of this legal medical record and what the impact is of this medical record on the care of our clients. If we were the ones that were receiving care, we would want our providers, I believe, to do everything that they could to advocate for us to see the best providers, to have the best and most appropriate treatment, and to really be able to focus on our treatment without having to be worried about whether or not the next service is going to be paid for. Part of our responsibility as providers is to make sure that we're doing the best by our clients, and this is one of the ways that we can do it. In addition to the impact our charts have on our clients in terms of utilization review and managed care, there are other important considerations. Our charts are really part of our reputation. 
And these charts may be referenced by colleagues, administrators, insurance companies, legal professionals, and possibly our referral partners, maybe even our clients and their families. Um, a good example of this that I have, I, as an outpatient provider, I'll sometimes receive records from past treatment episodes. And I received a chart that was from a hospital. The client had been in a psychiatric hospitalization. And the chart itself was literally copies of the doctor's prescription pad. It was scribbled out and it was nearly illegible. A few days later, I received another chart unrelated to this particular client or situation that was from a really reputable psychiatric hospital. This document, the set of documents was impeccable. It gave me very clear information about what was done when the client went into the psychiatric hospital, what the diagnosis was, what the treatment was, what the response was, what the recommendations were. It was so clear to me as an outside provider. And in my reflective process of where I might refer a client for subsequent psychiatric hospitalization, the truth of the matter is that I'm more likely to refer them to the facility that had this great clinical record because it's easy for me to believe as an out outside provider that the quality of the clinical chart may be reflective of the quality of the clinical work. That may not be true, but our clinical charts sometimes really can either improve or damage our reputation within the community because we are close-knit and we're constantly referring and cross-referring with one another. I also want to point out what can happen in relation to unforeseen circumstances. I know this is dark, but what happens if you need to abruptly leave your practice or if you become disabled or you pass away? What stories do your records tell? And then think about how this could affect your clients. Um, we don't always know what's going to happen. In fact, we rarely do, whether that's with us or with our clients. Our charts need to be consistently updated in order to reflect the most recent clinical information so that anybody coming in behind us has a very clear picture of what we did and why we did it. I also want to point out how our charts impact things like board complaints. Our records tell the story of why we did what we did. And if our records aren't there or they're inadequate, we might find ourselves in big trouble. Mental health providers in California must retain our patients' health service records for a minimum of seven years from the patient's discharge date or seven years after the minor patient reaches the age of majority. How good is your memory? I don't know about you, but mine isn't very good. And one of the reasons we need to be keeping such good records is so that we can look back on our treatment and so that third parties can look back on the treatment in the event of something like a board complaint. Additionally, there are legal consequences associated with our clinical documentation. There are a number of California laws that discuss the importance of maintaining clinical records. And there are also other considerations like insurance fraud. Fraud doesn't have to be intentional for it to be a crime. For example, let's pretend that you repeatedly bill an insurance provider for a service that you've delivered. So let's say three therapy sessions, but there aren't any corresponding records associated with, that, with those services. You're now towing the line on insurance fraud because a clinical chart doesn't back up the billing that's reflected. It doesn't have to be intentional, but there's a mismatch 
And the standard of care dictates if we're going to bill a service and we have a corresponding chart record that reflects what was done during that service and what occurred. Our charts need to speak to the five W's, who, what, where, why, and when. Some of these elements are really easy and simple to capture in our notes, like who, what, where, and when, but the why is what's really important and often missed. Why is critically important to medical necessity, and it also is our clinical justification. So when I say why, I mean, why did you recommend a certain treatment? Why did you diagnose that particular condition? Why did you refer the client out for a different level of care? Charge should be reflective of this information, and often this information has more to do with the client's functional impairment and with our assessment of that functional impairment than with only the symptoms themselves. Why is also one of the parts that's evaluated on an audit. If our clinical judgment were to come into question, one of the questions it would be asked is basically, why did you do this? Our charts need to be a persuasive document that lets the reader know the clinical justification and reasoning behind the decisions that we've made clinically. Since clinical documentation is such an important part of our clients receiving appropriate services, we really owe it to our clients to do our very best in our clinical documentation because it can be make or break for our clients receiving appropriate care. Chances are that if a client is at our doorstep, something has happened and they're hurting and that's why they're coming to us. The last thing we want is for them to also be worrying about whether or not their insurance company is going to cover the cost of the treatment that's being recommended. We really owe it to our clients to understand medical necessity and to integrate it into our clinical documentation so that we can really focus on the care that we're delivering to our clients and be the best, most flexible and responsive providers out there. The Joint Commission gives an example about so what questioning by a patient in their practical guide to clinical documentation. And basically, this example is a way to help providers conceptualize medical necessity and clinical documentation practices. Imagine that your patient is at the doctor and they've just been told that they have a serious condition. We would probably expect that person to have a lot of questions. These are what the Joint Commission calls so what questions. So what does all this data mean, doctor? So what is my condition? So what are my problems? So what should I do to resolve the problems I have? And where do I start? So what can you or others do to help me? So what can I do to help myself? So what should I look for and watch to see that I am progressing? This so what not only needs to be in our notes, but it's also how we are effective as providers. We answer all of these questions in our treatment with our clients. We let them know what their treatment plan is. We let them know how we're evaluating whether or not their anxiety is getting better or worse. And in terms of our notes, this so what kind of forms a backbone of medical necessity. Going back to that concept of functional impairment and also our clinical interpretation, why are we doing what we're doing? Um, what's the impact of that on the client or on the patient? And what are we hoping to achieve um, by delivering the treatment that we're recommending? In addition to so what questioning, the Joint Commission in their Practical Guide to Clinical Documentation 
notes, it is not that clinicians fail to complete evaluations or to identify the so what questions. They merely do not write them proficiently, and sometimes they do not write them at all. What I hear in that statement from the Joint Commission, you, you're good, you. Chances are that you're delivering wonderful, ethical, effective, comprehensive care to your clients. And I do believe that the Joint Commission has this one right. It's not that the care is bad or that the clinicians are, are failing to deliver appropriate care. It's that they either may not be documenting it at all, and if they are documenting it, they may not be documenting it appropriately. Through trainings like this, we're able to find some ways to document appropriately and improve our clinical documentation practices with the aim of better satisfying these legal and ethical requirements and also hopefully saving some time. In their 2014 book, Treatment Planning for Person-Centered Care by Adams and Greeter, they comment that most third-party payers will only pay for services if they are the following, indicated, appropriate, efficacious, effective, and efficient. So I want to break down what these different concepts really mean and how this relates to our clinical documentation. Indicated, number one. This basically means whether or not there's a relevant diagnosis. Is the treatment that we're recommending directly related to the diagnosis and the assessment or symptoms that this individual is experiencing? Number two, is a treatment appropriate? Uh, is there some likelihood that this treatment or level of care will meet the client's needs and also offer them an opportunity for improvement? Number three, efficacious. Is there some likelihood that this intervention or service will be effective? Is there research to back it up? Has it proven effective with the client in the past? Those kind of factors help us evaluate the, the efficaciousness of a service and also, number four, is it effective? Is there evidence that the treatment or service actually worked? And if it has worked, then it also kind of lends weight to the idea that it'll continue working in the future. Number five, is a treatment efficient? Are the intensity, frequency, and duration of the services logical, and are they not wasteful? Are they allowing the client to improve in a way that is minimally invasive whenever possible, and as respectful as standard of standard life functioning as can be. So for example, we wouldn't recommend that a client who has very limited functional impairment go to residential treatment. That would not be indicated appropriate, efficacious, effective, or efficient. So those factors, when we're looking at a clinical chart, will help us evaluate whether or not the treatment is actually medically necessary. It's been said that a good example has twice the value of good advice. So I want to offer up an example of the Joint Commission's so what questioning and how this relates to our clinical documentation. So let's say that the sentence that's in a note says, client reports that her boss is becoming increasingly more frustrated with her absences and she was written up yesterday. So again, to repeat, Client reports that her boss is becoming increasingly more frustrated with her absences, and she was written up yesterday. Okay, so what? What's the impact? 
she's more stressed out at work, let's say, because she feels like she's being monitored and her insomnia is worsening. Okay, so we're seeing that there's an increase in her in her symptoms. So what? She has been using more alcohol because she feels more stressed and both the alcohol use and her stress contribute to her work absences. Okay, so what? Well, she might lose her job if this continues. So what? If she loses her job, she might lose her housing because she's the sole provider for her family and her job is her primary source of income. Do you see how the so what takes us from the initial symptoms that are being reported and helps us basically evaluate the functional impairment? Here are the symptoms and what do they actually mean? So here's what this note should really look like if we're trying to fully capture medical necessity in this client situation. Client reports that her boss is becoming increasingly more frustrated with her absences and she was written up yesterday. This stress appears to have been contributing to her increase in alcohol use in a circular manner. Client's job appears to be at risk as well as her housing should she lose her job due to her mental health symptoms and substance use. Do you see how this example kind of ties all of these pieces together? Again, it's not just the symptoms that we're looking for in medical necessity, but they're how the symptoms, it's how the symptoms really affect that person in their individual functioning. So in this case, we initially start with some absences from work and that she got in trouble. And then we start to look at why she might have absences from work and how are those absences from work and her stress at work affecting her substance use. Now we start to connect these threads of information and that all points to medically necessary treatment. And if one example is good, then two examples must be even better of how to actually use a joint commission. So what questioning? So here's a sentence from the note. Client reports that he's been using marijuana throughout the day on a daily basis and has been experiencing severe heroin cravings. He continues to have limited insight into his substance using behaviors. Sounds like a sentence that we would all write, correct? So I'm going to repeat. Client reports that he has been using marijuana throughout the day, day on a daily basis and has been experiencing severe heroin cravings. He continues to have limited insight into his substance using behaviors. So what? His marijuana use has been increasing, as have his heroin cravings. Okay, so what? The last time he was experiencing severe cravings like this, he overdosed on heroin and was hospitalized. So what? What's our clinical interpretation here? He is at extremely high risk for relapse as a result of his overdose history, his present craving level, and his limited insight. And additional treatment in residential care is medically necessary right now to mitigate this risk. Again, do you see how we have these symptoms that are being reported? So he's been using marijuana throughout the day, he's been experiencing more severe heroin cravings, and we also say that he has limited insight. But what do these factors all actually mean for the client in the real world? Well, again, to review, his marijuana use has been going up and, and 
the last time that he was experiencing severe cravings like this, he overdosed on heroin. He also has a history of overdoses and he's at a very high risk because of that craving level and that history. So all these factors combined for us to recommend residential treatment. Here's what this note should really say to appropriately capture medical necessity. Client reports that he has been using marijuana throughout the day on a daily basis and has been experiencing severe heroin cravings. These have both been increasing. He continues to have limited insight into his substance using behaviors. He is at extremely high risk for relapse as a result of his overdose history, his present craving level, and his limited insight. Additional treatment at the residential level of care is necessary to mitigate this risk. In that section, with those few sentences, we're able to clearly illustrate why we're recommending additional residential treatment authorization or additional residential treatment. These factors all come together and need to be reflective of our clinical decision-making process. And that right there is a backbone of medical necessity. Medical necessity really needs to be everywhere in your clinical chart. It needs to be in your assessment, your treatment plan, your progress notes, your discharge plan, your case notes, any medical or nursing notes. Basically, anywhere that there is medically appropriate treatment or some consideration of the client's symptoms and presentation and diagnosis, then there needs to be some discussion of medical necessity. Again, medical necessity is an evaluation of whether or not the treatment is clinically appropriate for this particular client's needs. If we're delivering a treatment that isn't effective for whatever reason, we need to reevaluate the treatment plan. That's one way that we show medical necessity. And if we still find that our treatment isn't effective after we've modified it, then what are we doing to change a client's treatment? Are we referring them to a different provider? Are we adding in different services? Are we referring them back to a psychiatrist for another medication evaluation? All of those pieces are part of medical necessity. Additionally, medical necessity often comes up in case consultations. Oftentimes when we have those conversations, if we work at a treatment center, when we're speaking with the doctor and the nurses and the residential staff or whoever else is involved in the client's treatment, be it a teacher or a probation officer or anybody else, oftentimes those conversations are really laden with medical necessity. Make sure that that's making its way into your clinical chart. Make sure that that's part of the client's story because all of that ultimately supports the clinical decision-making process and your treatment recommendation for that particular individual. The clinical cycle, as I call it, has four critical components. The assessment, the diagnosis, the treatment plan, and the resulting progress notes. Your initial assessment or evaluation is your first opportunity to see and learn about the client's symptoms, their presentation, their history, their functional impairment, and all of those factors combine to help you arrive at a diagnosis. So once you have this diagnosis or diagnoses, then we come up with a treatment plan. That treatment plan is based on research or experience in order to best address and resolve those diagnostic conditions. Our progress notes also weigh into the treatment plan because basically our 
interventions and our objectives from our treatment plan dictate the client's treatment. If our assessment or if our diagnosis should change during the course of the client's treatment. So for example, let's say that we're seeing an individual that we've initially diagnosed with a depressive disorder and it becomes apparent that we're no longer looking at depression. There is some kind of bipolar disorder that's occurring. We then would reassess for these new symptoms that are appearing. We would probably change a diagnosis and then logically, we would have to change the resulting treatment plan. Would we then refer for different medications? Would be, we be using different methodologies and treatment to treat that new diagnostic condition? And that would be reflective in our progress notes. So make sure when you're looking at your personal clinical documentation that all of these pieces fit together and that medical necessity is really the thread that weaves its way through all of them. There needs to be a clear line that links that assessment to the diagnosis. And sometimes I'll find that the treatment plan and the progress note may not be related. So make sure to slow down and really think about, you know, what, I, what I'm doing in session, is this related to the treatment plan? And if it's not, do I either need to modify the treatment plan to be more reflective of what I'm actually doing in session, or do I need to change my sessions to get back in line with what we'd originally recommended in the treatment plan? One thing I often hear from clinicians is the difficulty balancing the documentation of improvements and deficits. This is where an evaluation of functional impairment really comes into play with medical necessity. And I wanna give you an example of this that will hopefully illustrate this in a more concrete way. So let's pretend that you've been seeing a client for a while and she comes into session and she's really happy. I mean, her ponytail is swinging. She's excited because it's her birthday and they're going out to her favorite Mexican restaurant and she's going to have her family and friends. So she's super stoked, like over the moon. In terms of medical necessity in this particular session, you may be thinking, well, there really isn't any medical necessity because she's really happy. Um, and this may be entirely true. However, I want you to ask yourself, what would happen and, and what do I think would be the impact on the client's life if she were to stop treatment tomorrow? So if I said this to you after the session and you were like, oh my goodness, no, that's a terrible idea. I want you to think about why that is. Chances are that you have some pretty good clinical justification for why you'd want her to continue therapy in spite of the fact that she was really animated and excited and happy in her most recent therapy session. So let's assume that you think it is a bad idea for her to stop treatment. This justification, your clinical reasoning becomes part of your medical necessity for this particular client. So again, let's pretend she comes in and she's really happy, but you know that this client historically has had difficulty in social interactions. Let's pretend she often struggles with really severe social anxiety. So is there a potential mismatch or an opportunity for her to try this new situation, going out to dinner with her friends for her birthday? And why is this clinically relevant and appropriate in her treatment? Moreover, let's pretend that this particular client also has a history of alcohol use disorder. And this is one of the first times that she's gone out to a restaurant where they served alcohol. This is a pretty good clinical opportunity for you to evaluate the relapse risk. 
So again, all of these pieces can come together, even if the client in this moment has a certain presentation or appears to be improving on one domain, but overarchingly, you're looking at the clinical episode and saying, oh, there's still more there that I think that we need to work on. Make sure that you're documenting that, oh, that you're feeling. That's the part that is your clinical interpretation of this client's care and their presentation. I'd like to share another tool with you that I call the safety first mnemonic. I think sometimes when we're writing our notes, it's hard for us to both conceptualize them in a certain note format, whether that's SOAP or GURP or DAP or one that your agency or you've invented. Um, and sometimes we need to also evaluate the actual content. So when we move past the format, do we actually have the critical information in the note? So this tool that I've invented, which I call the safety first mnemonic, helps you evaluate your notes to make sure that you're capturing the correct information at a very minimum. So let's start with safety. Uh, in this case, we're just looking at whether or not you've documented those critical safety or risk factors. And remember, make sure to document the client's presentation or the issue as well as your clinical response to it. I also want to point out, sometimes we get in the habit of just thinking of suicidality or homicidality or self-harm as a safety or risk factor. But in fact, safety and risk factors may include much more than that. For example, do you believe that this individual may be at risk for driving under the influence? Um, or do you believe that they not, may not be able to appropriately care for children that are in their home or in their workplace? Are they at risk for losing their employment because of their behavioral health or addictive disorder symptoms? All of those things are really safety risk factors. So make sure to kind of broaden the scope beyond just suicidality, homicidality, and self-harm, which you would of course include, but make sure to also think of those other things, basically asking yourself, what is this person at risk for, if anything? Job loss, um, maybe losing their housing, uh, maybe getting kicked out of school. There are those other risk factors that are also important to consider. So once we've moved past that initial word of safety, let's look at first. F is for functional impairment. I for interventions, R for response, S for symptoms, and T for therapeutic interpretation. So again, the safety first mnemonic, and I'm going to go through all of these letters individually. We have the first word of safety, then F for functional impairment, I for interventions, R for response, S for symptoms, and T for therapeutic interpretation. Now that we've taken a quick look at safety, let's look at functional impairment. So in this case, I'm really asking, how does this individual's condition or situation impact his, her, or their ability to function in important domains like work, school, home? This is where we evaluate uh, not just what the symptoms are, but how they practically affect that person. 
Um, for example, my joke is like, we all kind of know that person that might consume a heavy amount of alcohol every night, but they've never had a DUI. They get to work uh, every morning. They don't have really issues with their partner. Um, in general, you wouldn't know that they use that much alcohol. And then for me, if I used a lot of alcohol heavily, I would not be able to get to work. I would not be able to take care of my children. I would have an issue with my partner. So in this case, I would have a significant functional impairment related to that one substance using symptom that another individual might not. So consider how this symptom sets actually impacting the person in the real world. I for interventions. So we've covered this a little bit, but basically this is what you did in session. Uh, what intervention did you use? So did you engage the client in the creation of a pros and cons list about whether or not to switch majors in college? One thing I see in progress notes is we put a lot about the client, but we don't often include what we did in session. Make sure you include a couple of these interventions. Next is R for response. How did the client respond to you or to your treatment interventions? How did he, she, or they present? So this is a little bit of that mental status exam. S for symptoms. Now this is where we document both the symptoms that we observe in session, so maybe tearfulness or physical agitation, as well as their reported symptoms. So did they tell you about insomnia or lack of appetite? And last but not least, therapist interpretation. What do I think about what's going on? This is where we put on our clinical fancy hat and really evaluate all of these factors, their symptoms, their response, the interventions that we did, the functional impairment, their safety or risk factors, and then we put it together to formulate our clinical interpretation. So this might be the prognosis, um, their current treatment compliance or lack of compliance, could include your impressions about their diagnosis or their symptoms, maybe their progress. So all of those things would come together to form your therapeutic interpretation. This also needs to be in your progress notes. So again, safety first. Safety, functional impairment, interventions, response, symptoms, and therapeutic interpretation. Now that we've had the opportunity to talk about the conceptualization of medical necessity, let's actually put it into practice in how it's applying to your clinical documentation. I want to invite you to ask yourself some questions while you're either thinking about writing your notes or you're actually writing your notes. And I also want to, to mention, I am what I call a novel writer in recovery. Um, when I had my first internship, I thought that perhaps I was going to get some gold star from my boss if my fingers were bleeding because I had written such ridiculously long notes that they could also potentially pass as a novel. I wasn't capturing the right information. I was capturing some information, what I thought was appropriate, but I wasn't actually getting the real meat and that meat is medical necessity. The hope is that if you can really start to conceptualize medical necessity and apply it to your clinical documentation, your notes are going to become more and more efficient. It's going to be faster and easier for you to write these notes and get them off of your to-do list. So again, these questions are really geared at helping you capture medical necessity efficiently and avoid novel writing in your clinical documentation practices. 
Question number one, have I documented the critical safety and risk factors? And when I say safety and risk factors, I mean things like substance use, suicidality or homicidality, self-harm, uh, severe symptoms like command hallucinations or extreme purging, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, child or elder abuse. Any of these factors would relate to safety and risk. I also want to note this documentation practice includes both your client's presentation and your clinical response to it. I've seen notes before that do a really good job painting what the safety or risk factor was. It was discussed in session, but then lack that follow-up piece of what the clinician did to manage that safety and risk factor. So again, make sure you're documenting both the client's presentation and your clinical response. So for example, let's say that an adolescent client of yours discloses during your session that she intends to go home that evening, take her father's Xanax bottle, and consume the contents while drinking a handle of vodka. She explicitly states that she intends to end her life tonight. In response to this, you probably did a number of things. You probably sprung into action, you conducted a suicide assessment, you maybe contacted the client's parents by phone, you called the emergency response team or 911, you might have solicited assistance from another provider if you work in an agency-based environment. When you're documenting this session, you need to, again, document what she said and also what you did about it. So in this case, I would also recommend documenting with whom you spoke and when. Basically, all the events that pertain to this particular incident. Did you call the police? What phone number did you use? With which officer did you speak? How long did they say it was going to take for somebody to be out there? All of those factors should be in your progress note, particularly as they pertain to safety and risk factors. Your progress notes need to reflect what a prudent clinician would do in that particular situation. These safety and risk factors are absolutely critical to document appropriately. Or, for example... Let's say that the client tells you that she hasn't been craving heroin this much since her car accident, and she's intending to call her drug connect after the session. This fact is critical to her treatment. If you think that she's at high risk for relapse because of her cravings and her subsequent plan to go obtain more of that substance, then you need to make it a priority to document it. This is a really important risk factor. So again, make sure... First and foremost, the first question you're asking yourself, have I documented the critical safety and risk factors? Once you've documented those safety and risk factors, if there are any, the second question I want you to ask yourself is this. If I had 30 seconds in a case conference to present this session, what would I say? Does the sentence that you're writing concisely tell your colleagues about the client's symptoms, their functional impairment, their presentation, and their progress? Is there a different or shorter way to explain it? When deciding which interventions you're going to document, choose ones that you would present in the case conference. And speaking of documenting interventions, one thing that I often see in progress notes 
is a lot of information about the client, client reports insomnia, client reports um, attending school regularly, client reports an improvement in depressive symptoms. What's often missing is a, is a clinician's interventions. What did you do as a therapist or as a counselor during that particular session? And let's imagine you were at a case conference, you would probably say, I've been delivering treatment that's based in dialectical behavioral therapy, and we did this particular skill set in that session. Those are the most important interventions that I want you to present in case conference. Would you talk about the client's presentation and describe that he won his inner tube water polo game this weekend? Or would you discuss the dream content that the client had dialogued about? You might, uh, depending on your clinical background and your methodology, uh, you might document the inner tube water polo if it's an important part of the client's treatment. If the client has been extremely lethargic and isolative, but is now attending sporting events, you might document it because it's really illustrative of the client's progress, but it might be simpler to just write, client symptoms of isolativeness are improving as evidenced by more social interactions. You choose what you write, but chances are you would only bring up things that are clinically relevant during a 30 second case conference presentation. For interventions, I want you to think of the most important things that took place during the session. For a 50-minute session, really it's only three or four interventions that are really, really important. Think about what those meaty interventions are. You probably wouldn't say in a case conference that you established warmth and rapport. You would, however, probably explain that you engage the client in a dialectical behavioral therapy, check the facts activity, and also assisted them in identifying the pros and cons of whether or not he returns a phone call of his ex-wife. Also, from a utilization review perspective, the insurance companies want to know why they're paying you the big bucks to do what you do. Use clinical interpretation where appropriate and make sure to clearly state your interventions, just as you would during a case conference in telling your colleagues what treatments you've been providing to this client. Now that you've considered what you might say in a case conference, question number three is why? This often involves your clinical interpretation and it becomes part of the clinical reasoning for your interventions and for your treatment. So why did I do what I did? Why did I engage the client in a mindfulness exercise? Why did I recommend that the client attend additional group treatments? Why did I recommend that the client return back to a psychiatrist for a medication adjustment and evaluation? Why do I think the client needs this treatment? Make sure you explain your specific reasoning and your specific concerns. Going back to this idea of medical necessity, why do you think this client needs this treatment and what do you think might happen if the client were discharged later today? So again, if you think the client is at high risk, why do you think they're at high risk? If you think that additional family therapy is recommended, make sure your clinical documentation explains why you're making that decision. Because if those, if those decisions were ever called into question, your clinical documentation is really your strongest advocate for your clinical decision-making.
The fourth question I want you to ask yourself, is this a summary or is it a play-by-play? And this is a question that you often might ask yourself while you're in the process of writing a note. A summary is all that's really needed for our clinical documentation. We don't often need a play-by-play and a lot of that information might not even be clinically relevant. So let's pull from baseball for an example of this. A summary would include, Dodgers were ahead for the first four innings, and thanks to a grand slam by the Giants, the Giants took the lead and held on through the remainder of the game, winning 7-5. And in case you're wondering, yes, I'm from Northern California, so I I am inherently a Giants fan. Now, if we were writing a play-by-play, it would say, Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers opened the first inning wearing his cap backwards and walked the first hitter. The second at bat, Brandon Belt took a fast first strike, making the crowd roar. Do you hear the difference? One provides a lot of detail and goes moment through moment, and the other one just gives us the most important points that happened during that particular situation. If you realize that you're writing a play-by-play, I want you to stop writing, reassess, pull your hands off of that keyboard, and summarize the session in your head before writing again. When you're thinking about the details that you're going to write, remember, you really only need to capture the three or four most important interventions that you did during that session. And you also really only need to capture the most important and clinically relevant details about the client's symptoms and their presentation. You're not going to get any gold stars for writing a play-by-play, and it also might burn you out. That time and energy are better spent with your clients, so let's pare down that clinical documentation to make it as efficient and quick to complete as possible. The fifth question I want you to ask yourself relates to relevance. Is this sentence generally relevant to the gist of the note? So, for example, let's talk about a client's clothing. Is what the client was wearing clinically relevant and why or why not? So let's take a look at two examples. Client was wearing a green sweatshirt versus client was wearing a sexually provocative t-shirt with an image of a nude woman on it. How you respond to these two presentations would be different based on the situation and on the client's symptoms and needs. If the client's general style of dress isn't really relevant to their overall clinical presentation, then there's really no need to document it. The green sweatshirt might be important, let's say, if that person generally only wears black. Or let's say that that person wore a bathing suit to your last session, so it's clinically relevant that they're now wearing a sweatshirt. If that's the case, you'd probably document it, and you also need to document why you're, you're making note of this. Why is it clinically significant? Um, if their clothing is the same as usual, then probably leave it out. So let's use the example of a sexually provocative t-shirt. Is this generally how the client dresses? Is it clinically significant? So let's say that this particular individual, last session, you said to them, why don't we do an experiential practice and pretend to be in a job interview? I want you to dress how you would dress for a job interview. And they show up wearing this really explicit t-shirt. 
that's pretty clinically significant and tells you something about perhaps their functional impairment or how they operate in the world outside of session. But if that's consistent with what he always wears and it was just a standard session and not this job interview situation, then it probably isn't relevant to document it. If it isn't relevant, then it's fine to say that the client was stable and that he, she, or they presented for therapy. Last but not least, number six, does the client's actual quote explain this better than my clinical interpretation? One of the difficulties with documenting medical necessity is that something can potentially be lost in translation when we clinicians jump into what I like to call psychobabble. And I'm not knocking psychobabble. It has a time and it has a place, and it's absolutely clinically important for us to have a clinical take on a certain situation or on a client's presentation. But this shorthand can also have an unfortunate impact. Here's an example. So this is what we might write about a particular client. Client reports symptoms of depression, including suicidal ideation, tearfulness, and anhedonia. So that tells us very quickly and very succinctly a set of symptoms that have contributed to what the client is feeling in this moment. Example two, client reports, I've been thinking about suicide constantly and almost slit my wrist last night, but my son walked into the kitchen. I've been written up at work a few times for crying. I'm afraid I might get fired. My family can't survive without my income. I feel so bad now that I actually hid in my bedroom last week during my daughter's birthday party. I just couldn't fake it anymore. Clearly, one of these quotes really tells you what's at stake with this particular client, and this helps establish medical necessity. If the client's quote paints a better picture than your clinical jargon, then use the quote. Keep in mind that this session note might be make or break in terms of getting your client additional treatment with a managed care company. So yeah, that might mean that your note may be a sentence or two longer depending on what the quote is, but those quotes are really an advocacy tool. Another benefit of writing quotes is it it establishes something called individualization. During an audit and during accreditation reviews, they specifically look to make sure that the charts are individualized for each particular client. A lot of times clients will come into a specific treatment center and have very similar symptoms or clinical issues. So you could have um, a wave of admissions that are young Hispanic females that are struggling with anxiety those charts are going to be reviewed for individualization. And one of the ways that you can establish that is by quite literally writing a specific client's quote. So then you're, you're automatically implying that this client has specific needs and a specific perspective, and then that becomes part of the clinical record. All of those pieces come together to support medical necessity. Now to bring all this information together. Part of delivering ethical, high-quality care involves appropriately documenting that very care. During this lecture, we talked about the impact that medical necessity and clinical documentation can have on our clients and on ourselves, and we also reviewed some concrete examples of so-what questioning. I discussed the importance of weaving medical necessity through all parts of the clinical record, 
and offers some advice about how to document it when a client's presentation is in contrast to his, her, or their overarching treatment concerns. We also explored six questions that you can ask yourself in order to help separate the wheat from the chaff when documenting notes. And just to take a quick moment to review those, those six questions are, number one, have I documented the critical safety and risk factors? Number two, if I had 30 seconds in a case conference to present this session, what would I say? Number three, why? Number four, is this a summary or is it a play-by-play? Number five, is this sentence generally relevant to the gist of the note? And number six, does a client's actual quote explain this better than my clinical interpretation? All of this information about medical necessity matters because it needs to be the backbone of our care and also of our clinical documentation for the good of our clients and for ourselves. I'm a big believer in saving time and creating strategies to help get through the muck when writing notes. I wanna help you learn some ways that you can save time and energy so that you're giving your clients your very best each session. I promise you, if you hunger down and apply these strategies, once you get past that sharp initial learning curve, you'll be able to easily and quickly pull out the medical necessity from your sessions and apply it to your notes. For more on the topic of writing notes, please see our other e-learning titled Cranking Out Notes Ethically and Efficiently. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.